Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, it started in Baltimore, but now it seems that the government has spy planes over at least 15 U.S. cities. A black scholar examines the role that rage plays in black politics, and we'll take a look at the long history of African Americans' engagement with the people of Haiti. But first, the current wave of black-led protests are the largest and most sustained since the 1960s. Joshua Myers teaches Africana Studies at Howard University. He's author of the book, We Are Worth Fighting For, a history of the Howard University student protest of 1989. Dr. Myers rejects the idea that the current protests are unique to this particular moment in history. Not at all. I think it's a continuation of the sort of spirit that animated the students of 1989. And what's interesting to me is while the historical particulars are um, in many ways uh, different, but if you broadcast or expand the sort of agenda of the students in 89, there's a lot also that resonates. In particular, you know, this notion that the people should determine what's best for themselves, should determine how they want to live and how they want to inhabit, you know, these particular spaces that, you know, really not just particular spaces, but, you know, the, the entire planet. And so... I've been actually approached by one or two people um, who were involved at Howard in 1989, you know, who basically told me, you know, this kind of, this this moment reminds me of that moment. And so, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of continuity. And, of course, um, Howard students um, have been involved um, in many of the protest actions here in D.C. Uh, regarding the this kind of international response to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. In many campus protests, the police, or at least the surrounding city police, aren't, are not the issue. But that was seen by many of us as being an advantage that students at these universities brought a somewhat different view of black life beyond getting beat up in the head by uh, cops on a regular basis. So are you saying that police brutality wasn't the sole issue? What you cited in your book as student demands, that these demands were focused on what you called republicanism, that meaning neoliberalism as practiced at that time, and the need for black studies. The current protests are focused not solely, but mainly on the police. Well, since, you know, the current protests aren't necessarily university-based, except for the ones that are explicitly asking for a delinking between the institutions and the police departments on their campus, the kind of overarching theme, I think, is, you know, what does it mean for us to have ownership and power over the terms of how we live our lives? And, of course, the police have the authority of the state, of capital, and people are saying we, we want authority over ourselves. I think that's the same kind of thrust that we saw with the students in 1989 who were basically saying that the Republican Party or the political apparatus of this country should not determine what our education looks like. We determine what our education looks like. 
And in that sense, there's some synergy. But, you know, it's very interesting. You know, police brutality was a major issue in the 1980s, of course, as well. A lot of students come into consciousness because, you know, the killings of people you know, like Yusef Hawkins and others. And that becomes a major issue in part because of hip-hop. And so the convergence of, of conscious, you know, hip-hop music, student activism, and black studies sort of, sort of creates the energy that explodes by 1992 in, in, uh, in Los Angeles with, with, uh, with Rodney King. And so a lot of the students who were involved in 89 continued their work through the early 90s that led to sort of these responses to the Rodney King issue. For instance, uh, Raz Baraka becomes involved in Newark, New Jersey with creating civilian control boards, like some of the earlier or the 1990s versions of police reforms, which then sort of translates into a lot of important work regarding how we think about police or how we rethink police. And I think that's kind of moved towards what we now call uh, police abolition. And so there's a lot of important links between what, what we see now and what was happening in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. But I do think it is also at the same time a very unique moment. Yes, let's explore that. Yeah, back in the late 80s, not too many folks were talking about the outright abolition of the police. Is today's protest more revolutionary in some respects than the previous ones? Well, I think it builds, right? And so it, it looks at the previous histories of these acts of police violence and then the subsequent development of police reform, right? And by now, we have enough of a history of the failure of police reform or the ways in which police reform actually strengthens police departments in many ways. And also the ways in which police reform leads to particular backlash coming from the police unions and coming from other entities that then end up, you know, strengthening police. And so I wouldn't create a dichotomy. I would say that it builds on these previous histories of activism to basically move towards this sort of idea of the, end, the very end of policing. It doesn't happen without, you know, these other moments of activism. But to particularly, I'll give you one example. One of the things that was happening at Howard was that students were being harassed and brutalized, in many cases, by the Metro Police Department. And so D.C.'s police were, in many ways, the problem. But Howard's police department, they wanted to have a closer relationship with, right? They wanted to sort of ensure that they were supported by the institution, that they were being given, you know, adequate wages, that there was a lot of, in many ways, it was a labor issue for the students. And the campus police, they had the same grievances, the campus police, had the same grievances that many of the students had with the administration. And so one of the demands was to strengthen the campus police, right? Because, again, they were in many ways kind of situated position in the, in the D.C. community to provide a kind of connection and a kind of solidarity with the people. And so that's a very different thing than what we would, would, see, would see now. It's very rare that we would see a cause for the strengthening of a campus police department or a kind of solidarity with the police department among students. And I think that's because 
we have seen these subsequent histories of how reform actually looks, right? And so abolition has become the key way to think through these particular problems. And I think it's also an increased awareness of the real and true function of the police. People are beginning to, are beginning to realize that their role is not actually our safety, rather the safety of property and the safety of capital. Back in 1989, D.C. was still a very, very black city. The neighborhood around Howard University was solidly black. But today, D.C. has lost its black majority, and the neighborhood around Howard is not the same. How has that had, or has that had, any effect on organizing on the campus? Yes, it has. I think part of the problem is Howard is situated in a very strategic uh, location in terms of the the growing value of um, its real estate. And so the strategic move has been to use that positioning to increase its holdings, and I think the students are seeing this happening, and they are concerned, both students and alumni, are concerned about what this means in terms of not only the historical legacy, but also its imprint on gentrification. Many, for instance, dormitories have been sold off and have been repurposed as apartment buildings. And one of the last kind of waves of protest was, well, you know, what about the housing concerns of students, right? But it's coupled with, well, what do we do with the growing problems of homelessness in D.C.? Because what you're seeing with the rise of these developers is that they are actually creating new units or new dwellings that don't replace the ones that are being that are displacing the actual residents, right? And so you have one and two bedroom apartments where there used to be a family apartment. So where does that family now go? Even if they could afford like the new place, they couldn't go because it's structurally not designed for them. And so students have been raising these particular concerns. And the university has been uh, listening. It's been trying to sort of uh, adapt to the changing economic environment, but at the same time ensure that Howard's community relationships remain intact. But it's a growing concern for a lot of people, especially speaking as an alumni university. There's been a lot of concern about how this will look, how this will you know pan out, especially given the changing demographics of the city. Will Howard be a part of the displacement of people? Will it be a part of the development of this city? Or will it be an advocate for the people, the community that surrounds it, and making making and ensuring that displacement doesn't mean, sorry, development doesn't mean displacement? Has there been any change that you've discerned in the ideologies that are floating around campus today compared to 1989? Well, among students or among the administration? Among both. Okay. Well, from the administrator's position, I think it's been uh, relatively consistent. And one of the things I try to grapple with in the text is, you know, you have this longstanding sense of Howard's purpose as the sort of cultivation of a black elite. And that has political resonance in this country, right? As much as there is a fear or maybe a uh, reservation about black education, there's also a clear demand and desire for a black elite, right? And at the same time, you also have this notion or this real push for mass education of our people. 
And Howard, you know, is stuck in between those two demands and those two political imaginations. And so among the administration, I think this need for an, an elite is relatively consistent. We need people who represent, you know, the race in a particular way. We need people who are situated in corporate America in a particular way that then would open doors for the next two or three people. Whereas underneath that, you have students, some of whom you know, are first generation, some of whom are coming out of pre-existing activist traditions. That's really the story of the 1980s, right? They're saying that actually the university should be reimagined as something that has education, for all that produce that produces education for all, but also has this sort of related community aspect that we are talking about black people. We are talking about people, you know, of color broadly speaking. We're talking about, in fact, people of color throughout the world who can then use education as a means for self determination and the development of their own communities on their own terms. No university has ever produced that kind of educational mission. The struggle has been to make universities to do so. And I think that's really what the struggle was in the 1980s. Now, you still see that energy is still there, that spirit is still there. It's just not there in the numbers or in the or in, in terms of the intensity uh, that it was in these earlier periods. And it's very hard to come to a conclusion as to why. There are a lot of theories as to why, but it's hard to come to a conclusion as to why. But one of the things that I write about is one of the things that can't be discounted is the individualism that is associated with the increased neoliberalization of American society, really global society, where people say it's up to me to do what I need to do to ensure that I have. And that's a value that's kind of inscribed into this neoliberal moment that has affected black people um, at Howard, but also black people generally speaking. Neoliberalism is a term that was not on everyone's lips, not widely used back in 1989. Do you think your students today have a working familiarity with the term neoliberalism? Well, we try to make them familiar, but it's interesting. Our students today, many of them, you know, were, I think our oldest students were born in 1998, 1999. And so they were, they were born into a world where neoliberalism was the norm. And so it's very difficult to get them to step outside of what is normal for them and to see that this construction of a political and economic scene that they live within was a very, very particular and very constructed sort of environment, that there were ways of being that did not necessarily look like this, that were created for us, Right. And it happens in fits and starts, but I do think that it's very difficult to sort of negate the messages that are coming from other places, right? And so as we are teaching about these particular systems, they're also getting messages from black celebrities. They're also getting messages uh, from social media. They're also getting messages from their other classes where these kind of norms are situated in a very particular way. So the educational curve is much steeper because of the ways in which their lives have always in many ways been contained, if you will, by this neoliberal assumption. And so how do you get students to start to think about the notion of a strong state when they've never really lived um, in a strong state with the exception of this military power or military might? 
how do you get them to conceive of this notion that individuation, right, might not lead to our collective liberation, right? Does everybody can't be the next Oprah, right? And even if they could, even the five people that could, that doesn't necessarily mean the life conditions for black people change, right? And so that push, uh, we're we're trying to we're trying to make it, but it's very difficult to negate those messages when they're coming so strongly from the dominant culture. But we're trying, we're actively trying. The book itself, I think, is important because it tells the story of a generation, the generation of the children of the 60s movement and how they attempted to extend and continue what their parents uh, were able to do. And I think that era, whether we call it the hip-hop generation or however we choose to label it, is an era that has consequences for how we think about where we get where we are now. Because as I was saying earlier, right, the neoliberalization of American society was resisted at the be at its outset. You know, these students in the nineteen eighties were resisting Reagan at its outset. They were resisting the war making power of George H. W. Bush at its outset. And so how that translated into the music, how it translated into the culture, I think needs to be understood because just as every other uh, movement that we know about in our history, there is a response. There was an attempt to suppress. And the suppression of the, the youthful energy of the 1980s and 1990s in many ways help, might help us better understand how we get to a moment where the movement either ebbs or it transforms into something else. Many of the people who I, I write about uh, end up going into the music industry or going into education, and a select few end up going into politics. And so one can't understand a Raz Baraka. One can't understand even a Sean Combs without understanding what was happening among black students um, in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. And so that's uh, one thing that this book tries to tell, uh, one story that this book tries to tell through the lens of Howard students. But it's my hope that there are more books that are written um, about this period so that we can have a fuller picture of how black students resisted this in this particular moment and what implications it, will ha it has for us understanding the historical trajectory that we're on right now. That was Professor Joshua Myers speaking from Howard University in Washington, D.C. Rage is one of the engines that has kept the current wave of protests going week after week. Nicholas Brady teaches Africana Studies at Bucknell University. I think in the piece I was really trying to make a, a kind of differentiation between rage and anger as an emotion. Because I think that anger as an emotion is definitely one of the things that it energizes you, but then it kind of, it's fleeting. It focuses too much on an object. The way I kind of think about rage, though, is something that's more inexhaustible. It's something that one feels at a general condition. And this really rose... For me, for thinking about the murder of Breonna Taylor, the murder of George Floyd, and to me, what I've seen amongst people my age and people that are younger that have been really all Black people really dealing with this for a long, long time, people reaching a point where their critique broadens away from thinking about an individual police officer and their problems or their individual problems, and that rage kind of widening its scope. So that suddenly the police as an institution, right, becomes 
the problem, not individual police officers, but thinking about that institution and a web of institutions really of the police as being a part of something that actually needs to be defunded and abolished and controlled. That to me is really what I was thinking of with rage and why I was thinking that um, it leads to a different type of political vision than anger. Because anger really is about specific officers. I think when we're looking at Black Lives Matter originally, you know, there was a lot of like focus on each individual, each individual context. But as it kind of blossoms into a national and then an international movement, it brings into stark focus that all of these cities and individual contexts are linked to a shared problem and a shared institutional problem of the police. And then really my hope is that eventually we broaden it away from the police when we start thinking about wider things. But that's kind of how I was making the differentiation that I thought rage is really something that it becomes not just a feeling, but a, an inexhaustible devastation at a larger set of institutions. Well, if rage is inexhaustible, then it certainly will be needed because after one identifies the need for, let's say, community control of police, there's a huge mm-hmm. amount of not exciting work mm-hmm. involved in organizing communities to actually demand community control of police over a sustained Mm -hmm. period of time to find and develop politically community representatives to defend the community's right to control the police. Mm -hmm. These are down-in-the-trenches kinds of work Mm -hmm. that we don't usually associate with outraged people. Yeah, I definitely think that that makes sense. I mean, I've, I've been kind of in, in organizations, you know, for a while um, in my life. And I think to me, like, I guess the quote that I was kind of operating off of, I didn't directly quote him, but I was thinking a lot about James Baldwin's statement that to be Black and to be relatively conscious is to be in a constant state of rage. And I thought that his language there about a constant state, I think is really what I was thinking about, that you kind of reach a point where instead of it being hot, like enter, like the energy or fervor of anger, and it kind of becomes something that I think that's more simmering or something that's colder where, yeah, you start thinking about, I don't want to just be outside and do a protest every other day or something like that, but I want to figure out how do we actually affect actual real change. And I think that that's the thing that organizers really want to tap into, not just a quick fleeting emotion, but getting people into a point where they're willing to sit down and be like, I will actually commit myself to organize activity over time which definitely means that the struggle is protracted, right? As you're saying, that it isn't just something that you do on a Saturday or it isn't just something that you do over a couple days, but it's potentially something that you do over years. You don't necessarily see like an exciting victory every other day, but instead you might be fighting for years without really seeing that much um, change. But you know that you actually have to be in that struggle for a while. So you're talking about something like a sustained and controlled heat, an internal combustion that continues. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think to me, like a part of uh, what my article was trying to think about in my own research, I try to go back to the past and to the, the uh, uprisings of the 1960s. And I try to think about their effect on politics, because I think that, you know, oftentimes the way it gets... I don't really think that part really get taught to people, certainly not really in school, but I don't really think we have really much conversation outside of school even really, you know, about just how large the uprisings were in the, at the end of the 1960s that you have, you know, over a seven-year period of time, you have over 700 different rebellions across the nation and the impact that it had on politics. I think a lot about that because at the one end, you know, each individual riot 
may or may not sustain itself, you know, for very much longer than a week. You know, those are really the long ones, you know, it may not sustain itself longer than a couple of days. But the effect that it has usually on communities as you track it, you know, the people that were involved, the people that are politicized in that moment, you start seeing that organizations start developing in those cities that take in people that have been politicized by rebellions. And that's sort of what I've been interested in, is that how do you go from um, an open air rebellion or revolt, um, and how do you actually turn it into something that's more longstanding or long-forming? That's right. Real movements are marked by people from all strata of the mm -hmm. oppressed community finding ways to join into that movement so that mm -hmm. you have elements of whole communities who are engaged mm -hmm. in some kind of movement activity, in some kind of division of labor towards what is believed to be a common goal. Mm -hmm. That is, I believe, not the stage that we have yet reached, but maybe the stage that we're on the way towards. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly the hope. And I think that we're seeing at least some explicit work that's happening in terms of getting people politicized around defunding the police. I'm starting to see a lot more questions and movement about police and prison abolition than I really even thought probably was possible like a month ago in terms of just like just normal people in my life who have not really been organizing or have not really been involved in organizations at all, but just actually have real questions about it now because they've reached a kind of breaking point with the police. And this to me is what the work was really hoping that certain people would get to the point of, which is actually seeing that the police are not reformable. Um, you can't fix it. There has to be a complete radical overhaul to how we figure out and handle safety and health that can't be resolved by a person with a gun that patrols the neighborhood and starts really thinking honestly about what the police are actually doing, that they're not really concerned with safety, but that they're concerned with something else, which is controlling space and controlling property. Yes, even when one achieves certain victories, like the concessions that mm -hmm. politicians make when they get scared, as you write about in your piece. Yeah. But as these concessions are made by these establishment politicians, those concessions have to be analyzed, and there has to be yeah. a response to them. And that usually requires a lot of work. How mm -hmm. do you create institutions that are controlled by the people uh, that provide mm -hmm. security to the community. And then how do you get the establishment to fund these institutions that are not directly under their control when all they really mm -hmm. want to do is reimpose the occupation army in some right. kind of different uniform and with a different demeanor? Right. I think first off, it has to happen, and I think we've seen this with some of the problems with like donations going towards a, a Black Lives Matter foundation that's not even really attached to that or uh, just invented by a person that wants to make nice with the police or something like that. It has to be organizations that exist outside of the uh, 501c3 organizing status. It has to be grassroots uh, political education. And I absolutely think that that question, you know, in terms of getting people away from just being angry to thinking about what is the source of their anger, I absolutely think it's an organization question. So I think we've seen some of that work that's really being done at the grassroots level, at the local level. I and mean, I'm thinking about the local chapters of the Black Youth Project or organizations like Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle in Baltimore. 
you know, different grassroots organizations that are really thinking about, you know, each day, how do we commit to both political education at the local level and then thinking about how do we affect change at the local policy level? So I think you were, you were mentioning like community control of the police. I think that's, it, for instance, that proposal is a really difficult policy solution because we've seen where that demand gets subverted into something like a community panel that has no teeth and is usually just stocked by people who are supportive of the police or who are put in place by the mayor or some other local entity that people don't have control over. So that question of like, how do you actually grab power and control over the budget of the police, I think is really the next question. I'm hoping when people are thinking about defunding the police, they're thinking about people control of the budget and start thinking more at a concrete level about what that actually means for us to control the budget versus it being controlled by a city council or a mayor. Yes, the same logic that calls for community control of the police would also demand community control of those services, those other services that are provided Mm -hmm. by government, whose Mm -hmm. recipients, the communities that receive these services, don't have control over the nature of the services. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I guess to me, when I wrote the piece, and you know, I definitely understand what you were saying earlier. So I think when I wrote the piece, that's what I was really trying to think through is that I think, you know, we have a lot of focus on the police right now, but I think that some of the dangerous things that are potentially around the corner about how certain city governments are seeing, okay, we can, we can make a concession to the movement, but that concession doesn't necessarily change that much is the concession of, you know, how do we take certain amount of money from the police? And we just transfer it into other entities that are also not in the people's control. So thinking about the problems of the city and federal control of housing, thinking about the problems like child protective services, just general the social service sector that when it's not in the hands of grassroots organizations, but it's in the hand of the city, state and federal government and how that operates also as a policing element, maybe not a policing element with a gun per se, but a policing element that controls your housing or your health or your child. That to me is, I'm hoping as we start widening our scope of how we consider how the government and uh, state actors, and then eventually other actors that are maybe even more powerful in the state, have a fascist control over our life right now in such a way that our anger actually widens our scope of our enemy. And we don't just say, take the police budget and add more money to CPS. But instead we ask questions about how do we take that money and we give it to grassroots organizations that are doing real therapy work out in the community. How do we take that money and directly redirect it into community organizations that are trying to organize ceasefires, right? Like ceasefire in Baltimore that are actually out here trying to work with community actors, but don't have nearly enough of a budget to operate on the scale that they should be, even though they're operating on a pretty huge scale already. They could operate on a larger scale. This struggle for community control can also be described as a fight for direct democracy or self-determination. But as that struggle matures and progresses, you get fewer concessions or few ready concessions from those in power because you're talking about who has the power. Right. And I think that's what I I try to think about in terms of when, especially when I was, I guess, talking earlier about like the work I was doing, a work I'm trying to do on the urban rebellions in the 1960s or other things is that I think there's a direct relationship between the sustained, long protracted struggle and what people are trying to do out in the streets every day, every night, the kind of revolt activity 
that a part of what they're trying to do is they're trying to produce a moment yeah, of outrage, but also I think, you know, a moment of intense leverage that forces open a conversation that maybe wasn't possible even a month ago to have on a national stage. So that question of power and leverage are definitely some things I'm hoping that I think we're starting to see in certain, at least in certain cities and in a certain context. How do you take a revolt that's stopping a city from functioning in certain places? And how do you turn that into leverage to demand for something much larger than politicians are normally either able or willing to concede to you? Nicholas Brady, author of Black Rage. It's been revealed that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security deployed airplanes, helicopters, and drones over at least 15 cities to spy on the latest wave of public protests. The U.S. military isn't supposed to back up local police without specific presidential authorization. Police spies in the skies are nothing new to the majority black city of Baltimore. A police spy plane was discovered operating in secret four years ago. Now it openly spies on the public, as Vanessa Beck reported to a Zoom conference of her organization, the Black Alliance for Peace. That spy plane started its official six-month test run um, in May. Um, And something that the uh, first phase operation Relentless Pursuit cities have in common Um, in addition to having large black or brown populations, um, is that all are targeted by these uh, public-private partnerships to become what's called smart cities. And um, smart not as in uh, community-controlled public education for all, but smart as in smart phone. So equipping the city with a network of online cameras and internet surveillance um, all along streets, buildings, and vehicles um, covering the whole city that can be used by government, police, uh, foundations, corporations to electronically uh, monitor anyone and everyone 24-7 for a myriad of reasons. And um, for the Smart Cities scheme, the spy plane would be used um, towards assessing where this additional surveillance um, should be installed. Um, A a related technology is the facial recognition software. And one company the military has regularly contracted with that makes this and um, a lot more is called Palantir. And um, in 2019, they got an $800 million contract uh, with the U.S. Army to create intelligence hardware and software for the visualization and understanding of the threat and other aspects of the operational environment. And during the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq, their technology uh, was used by the, by the Marines, allowing them to remotely upload um, DNA samples and then match it to um, fingerprints and DNA evidence that um, the military had collected over the years. So now this this company has been given a contract with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to fight coronavirus. And, um, uh, oh, and a known issue with this kind of technology um, is that, well, it's, it's often wrong. It, it particularly misidentifies people with darker skin and particularly uh, women with darker skin. 
Um, so another technology that we probably all heard about is um, this contact tracing. Um, and it's, it's written into um, HR 6666, uh, which is the Trace Act, the Testing, Reaching, and Contacting Everyone Act. Um, it's waiting for Senate approval. Um, but some cities have already launched their own programs. And for the contact tracing, um, the government sends newly trained employees door to door to test people for the virus. If you're positive, they go through your phone history um, to identify everywhere you have been in the past couple of weeks. Um, they'll then trace anyone you were in contact with and you'll be told to quarantine. Um, if you're deemed unable to, to do so adequately, let's say from your family or, or your roommates, it's possible that you or your child may be removed from your home. And there have already been cases of people being put in jail for refusing to get tested or refusing to quarantine. And um, no trial is required um, or given because of special policies when there's a, an official state of emergency that's been called. Of course, we've also seen arrests and beatings by police disproportionately of our black folks uh, for breaking social distancing guidelines. Um, it's a war on coronavirus has been declared and you know the mainstream media has publicized that black people are proportionately affected so connect those those dots um, and then of course despite um, claims to the contrary this technology is going to be used regardless of, of the virus for example Minnesota government admitted that they have been contra uh, contact tracing protesters and when asked why they said oh because we want to learn more about that <laughs> um, wait, Ty I actually lost track with your okay a minute um, so, in conclusion, um, just as the United States clings to um, its, its arsenal of military tricks uh, to try to maintain its, its power globally, um, they're using the same playbook here in, in the United States. Um, they, the state knows that mass poverty can lead to mass uprising, you know, even before the shutdown lockdown. Uh, which wasn't instituted in the name of or for the purpose of public health, we were already moving deeper into a recession. And less than half of black people have jobs right now. All working class groups are faring badly. Um, the only group benefiting from the shutdown is the neoliberal billionaire class. This militarized response to a virus and um, to the protests triggered this time by George Floyd's murder by the state, um, they're being used by the neoliberal elite towards the same goals um, to decrease our wealth and stability while increasing and consolidating their wealth, their power and control, um, essentially trying to move us quickly into a more extreme neoliberal or totalitarian state. That was Vanessa Beck of the Black Alliance for Peace. Haiti has seen wave after wave of popular protests against a succession of governments imposed on Haiti by the United States. African Americans have had a close relationship to the people of Haiti since the islands enslaved revolted and declared independence in 1804. We spoke with Vanderbilt University professor Brandon Byrd, who's written a book entitled The Black Republic, African Americans and the Fate of Haiti.
the title really is meant to evoke the ways that African-Americans thought about Haiti, the very rich, powerful, sometimes very fraught ways they thought about it. The Black Republic, just think about what that signaled in the 19th century. It signaled, of course, the racial element, Blackness, right? A shared commonality rooted in that African heritage, rooted in a contemporary experience of slavery, racial oppression, potentially freedom. But that that word republic, too, it signaled modernity. It signaled, to use a word in the 19th century, and it's a very complicated word, civilization. When African Americans thought about Haiti as a Black Republic, they oftentimes were using that word less as a representative of uh, actual political formations in Haiti, and more using it as a sort of aspirational language that was really supposed to signal everything that Haiti could represent in terms of a modern Black political formation that could really have unique meaning for African Americans and, of course, other African-descended people across the diaspora. Yes, of course, Black Americans wanted Haiti to do as well as possible to be right. what in domestic parlance we used to call a credit to the race. But of mm -hmm. course, the United States and all of Europe were doing everything they could to <laughs> make sure that Haiti failed. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's what complicates things. At the same time that Black intellectuals in the U.S. and activists, and I'm using that word to describe a very wide swath of African-Americans who were all thinking, but at the same time that, as you say, they are so yearning for a Haiti to be this credit to the race, to take a place among the sisterhood of nations, to use a 19th century phrase, as you say, Europe, the United States, politicians, military officials, capitalists in those countries, they are doing everything in their power to not only make sure that Haiti fails as an independent state, uh, but to make sure that it becomes useful to them, right? So that it, they want it to be a failure as a sovereign policy, but they want it to be successful in ways that will enrich them, literally enrich them. In the 19th century, Republican administrations typically appointed rising black politicians to be the U.S. Mm -hmm. ambassador to Haiti. That was the plum and maybe only black American foreign service position. Mm -hmm. That's right. They call it the Haitian plum, the epitome of a plum position. As you say, after the Civil War, beginning immediately in Reconstruction with Ebenezer Bassett, rising African-American political figures, particularly within the Republican Party, are rewarded with this diplomatic post in Haiti. And of course, it is meant to be a reward that will be enough from the perspective of white Republicans. This will be enough to satiate the black political base of the Republican Party. In the, the history of uh, these black diplomats in Haiti, it's a really important piece of this history it's a very complicated piece of the history because, of course, these diplomats, they, like I said, the first one's Ebenezer Bassett. Uh, they include most notably Frederick Douglass. Uh, when they go to Haiti, they're going as agents of a U.S. state that in the late 19th century and the early 20th century is becoming a real imperial power, that it is trying to ascribe new imperial meaning to the Monroe Doctrine as being a doctrine that authorizes the U.S. to control militarily, politically, the entire Western Hemisphere. 
Uh, so these black diplomats, when they go to Haiti, they're in the position as agents of an empire. At the same time, they are very much aware of their standing within the black community of the United States. They possess oftentimes fraternal feelings uh, with Haitians, right? So they have to navigate uh, their position vis-a-vis all these other populations. And the case that I really try to highlight and that other scholars have highlighted as well is uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, When he goes there, the U.S. uh, tries, makes their most forceful attempts to date to try to acquire uh, Haitian territory. The Mole St. Nicholas, what was called the Gibraltar of the West Indies, sitting right on the Windward Passage. Uh, The U.S. wants to establish a coaling station there. Douglass is there. The U.S. sends a Navy admiral to lead, quote-unquote, negotiations for this prime Haitian port, this prime Haitian harbor, uh, where it can house a growing U.S. military. And in the process of those negotiations, uh, Douglas learns that U.S. had affected regime change, that U.S. believes that in affecting regime change and bringing the current Haitian president to power, that they are entitled to the Haitian territory. And Douglas is put in the position, and he's, he's shocked with how forthrightly the U.S. admits to this role in affecting regime change in Haiti. And he has to grapple with being at the nexus of U.S. empire. And famously, when it comes back to the United States, he takes very powerful rhetorical positions on the side of Haitians. Haiti is black. The world has never forgiven Haiti for being black. He comes back to the U.S. with a very firm understanding about how capitalism and racism are operating as the forces behind U.S. imperialism. Yes, you write that Haiti was is a bellwether for what's occurring today throughout the Americas and the world, talking about the behavior of U.S. imperialism today. And in fact, Haiti was isolated, sanctioned, periodically invaded for literally generations. Yes, literally generations. It's uh, the Haitian uh, writer Edwin Jnatikat has been one of the most powerful voices in identifying the long legacies of an unending U.S. occupation. That we, we talk about the U.S. occupation in 1915, the first U.S. occupation of Haiti in 1915. We can ask the question about whether that occupation really ever ended, right? Uh, we can really think about whether it continued not only in U.S. continuing intervention and implications in Haitian politics, economics, but also whether it's evolved, and I don't mean that word positively, right, evolved to include other members of the quote-unquote international community, including the UN. If we just look, uh, and what I mean by unending, uh, think about what the U.S. occupation did in 1915, which lasted in 1934. One thing it did, it completely reorganized the Haitian military, placing it under American commanders, augmenting the number of troops, giving them, quote-unquote, better weaponry, more centralizing that military, trying to ensure that they could control the rural population, trying to make sure that that military could basically be the agents of a stronger state, a central government that would be more pliable to U.S. economic and political interests. So the U.S. does all that, completely reorganize the Haitian military. It's that military that then becomes a dominant force in Haitian politics after the U.S. ostensibly leaves Haiti in 1934. It's that military that then allows the rise to power 
that gives support to somebody like Francois Duvalier, who leads one of the most violent dictatorships in the modern Americas, whose son then continues that modern dictatorship, a dictatorship that will wreak havoc on Haiti from the 1950s and the 1970s. We have to think back to that early moment of the occupation to think about uh, how that happens, how that's enabled. And of course, the U.S. is funding both Duvaliers with millions of dollars, too. Right. So there's these ties, right? We have to think about this unending occupation, as you said, Haiti as this sort of bellwether for other things happening uh, in the Americas. When we think about there's a current conversation about policing in the U.S. Well, of course, policing is a modern and transnational colonial anti-Black project, right? Policing in the U.S. is connected to the policing in Haiti, and it's connected because of these various uh, linkages that are brought about by the Imperial Project. The same factors that are creating modern police in the U.S. are then exporting that project to occupied Haiti, for example. Your book stresses the importance of Black American internationalism and solidarity with folks Mm -hmm. elsewhere in the world. And we know that Haiti, for a time, was the focus of Black American internationalism as the only Black republic. But these days, very few Black Americans even know that six million Congolese have died under three U.S. administrations and under conditions created by the United States. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about this, and I can't say that I've reached definitive conclusions, that I can speak with expertise on this. There's more questions at this point about where our internationalist politics stand today. I, I, I think there's some ways we can look at the U.S. media and reach the conclusion, and I think it's the right conclusion, that uh, U.S. Uh, stories get far more play in the media. I would say even in media that centers Black American voices. Right now, we're having a conversation about George Floyd and to a lesser extent, unfortunately, a lesser extent, Breonna Taylor, right? But there are examples, as you point out, from Africa and across the African diaspora of state violence uh, and state violence that is rooted in U.S. and European imperial projects. Yeah, so there's a need to talk about that. As you say, there's a need to continue the internationalist project, in part because that's the only way to understand local iterations of these phenomena. And I don't know how we can get better about that. Well, certainly we expect our activists to be speaking of the international connection and of solidarity. But Alicia Garza, who's a founder of the hashtag Black Lives Matter, commissioned what she said was the biggest ever survey of Black American public opinion. About 30,000 folks were interviewed, and yet in that survey, Not one question on foreign policy was asked, Hmm. as if Black folks don't have anything to say about foreign policy. Right, right. That's an issue, right? You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, a pandemic that's wreaking lives disproportionate on Black people in the U.S., and it's also doing the same thing in Brazil, for example. So the way that you have to understand that we have to talk about the racial disparities of COVID-19 can't be rooted in the nation state. Right. It can't be just rooted in a discussion of what's happening in black New York. Right. It's got to involve the favelas. I guess what I would say is that thank God that we have spaces like the Black Agenda Report, because I know y'all center this type of 
international perspective and comparative perspective that is really the form uh, that's going to lend the keenest insights. Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora is another place where these conversations are happening. So maybe, maybe the, the point is to try to give more attention to those spaces where these uh, really comprehensive, holistic analyses are taking place, maybe try to, to amplify those as much as possible. Could it be that because so many Black Democrats have been engaged in the more recent suppressions of the Haitian people's political aspirations, Mm -hmm. that it causes Mm -hmm. a complication among Black Americans in terms of how they view Haiti? Sure. I I think that that's probably true for U.S. foreign policy across the board. It's the question of when you have uh, black faces and these spaces, right? It's what happens when you have black folks reaching, certainly not by any stretch, a critical mass of congressmen or senators, but you or you know now a recently a black president. Uh, But it's the question when you have some in those positions, when you have some who are directing foreign policy, which structurally in this moment, right, it may be something. Maybe this moment we build something new. But right now, in the present, can't be anything but an imperial project. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. It's the question of perhaps not interrogating, not really probing what the politics of these black people are, not really probing what it means to go beyond representation. It's not to say that these criticisms aren't happening from the left. They certainly are. Kiangi uh, Yamada Taylor on a domestic level, you know, from Black Lives to Black Liberation, if I if I'm remember that title correctly, uh, is an excellent, excellent inquiry into these politics of representation, inquiry into these, the rising of a Black political class on a domestic level. And we can apply those questions to a foreign level as well, too. What does it mean when Black folks are uh, propping up essentially a neo-Duvaliaist regime in contemporary Haiti? a regime that uh, has dispatched police and state violence against protesters fighting for a living wage, contesting inflation that is uh, completely, uh, you know, manufactured, that's completely manufactured in a, uh, in a situation in which the political elite uh, continue to prosper. Uh, so, you know, all these things have to be put on the table, and they can only be put on the table, as you point out, by questioning not only the U.S. as a national project, but also questioning what role we as African-Americans have in that national project. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you'll find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.